0: Iran is in the midst of its most significant protest and popular uprising since 2009, when the so-called Green Revolution was quashed by the government. Now, since December 28th, tens of thousands of people, possibly more, have taken to the streets in several different cities and demonstrations against both the more moderate elected president of Iran, Hassan Rouhani, and the more hardline supreme leader, Ali Khamenei. As my guest today, Arian Tabatabai, explains, these protests began largely as a response to worsening economic conditions and the rising costs of consumer goods. And unlike the 2009 protests, the people taken to the streets are mostly drawn from groups that have historically supported more conservative elements in the Islamic Republic. So this poses a serious political challenge to the ruling authorities in Iran. In our conversation, Arian discusses the roots of these protests, how they spread so quickly, and how the Iran nuclear deal is an important factor in the politics and economy of Iran. Ariana Tabatabai is the director of curriculum of the security studies program at Georgetown University, which I personally attest is a fantastic program. I graduated from there a few years ago, let's say at some point early in the Obama administration. It was a great education. I only wish that Ariane was at the security studies program when I was a student there. I also wanted to flag a piece that Arion recently wrote in The Atlantic about the protests in Iran, and I'll post a link to those on globaldispatchespodcast.com. Before we begin, a couple of quick things. Number one, if you're a regular listener to the show, could you please leave a review on iTunes or at the very least give it a starred review. Five stars, hopefully, if you really like the show. Four stars if you think it's just okay. No, uh, seriously, it really is a useful way of improving the visibility of the show among people who are searching for foreign affairs podcasts on iTunes. Uh, The more reviews, the more stars the show gets, the more likely it is to show up in the feeds of people who uh, like this kind of content. So you would be doing a selfless act. Thank you very much for that. Other thing, if there are people you want me to interview or topics you want me to cover in this new year, uh, please send me an email and you can do so via the contact page on globaldispatchespodcast.com. And now here is my conversation with Arian Tabatabai of Georgetown University. Looking for a trustworthy podcast to bring you unfiltered viewpoints and experiences on global health? Global Health Matters is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify and YouTube.
1: You know, if you have been monitoring Iranian social media accounts on both sides, I would say on the hardliner side, on the reformist side, uh, but also sort of the general audience who may not be necessarily uh, part of the regime's base, people who are not typically associated with one side or the other, uh, you would have seen little elements of it brewing already. A few weeks ago, the price of daily goods like eggs, like chicken, started to hike. And uh, people started to you know, take on uh, social media platforms, Instagram, Telegram, and, and other uh, platforms, to talk about uh, what that meant, how that fit in uh, Iran's economy, uh, how the politics and and the policies pursued by Rouhani on the one hand, the hardliners on the other, uh, were contributing to this to this price hike, and so what happened was that in. Earlier in December, Rouhani also gave this speech, and you know he he unveiled the uh, the official budget of the government for the upcoming uh, Persian year, which starts in March. Where uh, he also alluded to a number of the sort of shadow economy, right, um, where a lot of the money goes, including things like foundations and uh, the IRGC activities and so on and so forth. Which and and the
0: IRGC is the Revolutionary Guards, like the, the paramilitary force, right, that supports the clerical regime.
1: That's exactly right. And and what's interesting with them is that they're not just a paramilitary force at this point. They're also an, an incredibly powerful political and military uh, military but also economic establishment, they have hands in a number of different sectors in the Iranian economy, uh, which is partly why uh, it's been so difficult for Iran to get the benefits of the nuclear deal. I mean, there are a number of reasons why that's the case, and we can get into that. But uh, the IRGC presence in various key sectors has been uh, very, um, you know, deters businesses and investors from going into Iran. So after the speech, and after the price hikes, you started to see people taking on uh, coming down in streets and protesting against, uh, you know, the essentially how the, uh, the economic policies of the government are affecting their own daily lives. Uh, what's interesting with this specific uh, round of protests is that, number one, this is the biggest, uh, most widespread protest we've seen since the 2009 uh, so-called Green Revolution, which uh, was a response to the re-election of the hardline President Mahmoud Ahmadinejad the elections were largely seen as uh, fraudulent. And so people took to the streets in 2009, millions of people did in various cities in Iran, uh, mainly uh, youths, uh, women, um, sort of middle-class Iranians. And so they took to the streets, and that was the largest protest in, in a very long time in Iran. Uh, and, and really, a, 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 you know, the the repercussions of it were, were felt by the regime for, for a while. You know, it was a crisis of legitimacy for the regime in a way that, you know, it hadn't experienced in a very long time. So now what's interesting with this uh, specific uh, route of protest is that you're seeing, uh, you know, since 2009, the first time when something like this is happening, but you're also seeing the working class come out in the streets. And the working class is typically viewed as the Islamic Republic's base, Uh, They're not necessarily the most active in the protests that you typically see. Uh, You know, those are typically led by students, again, by sort of middle class uh, women um, uh, and students and and youth. So uh, the 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 people who are out in the street are, are interesting. And the other thing, too, is that you're
0: well, seeing... I, should, should I, say, I just want to emphasize that a bit, because it seems that you're saying, whereas yeah. in 2009, the millions of people that protested were mostly people who were more politically moderate, a little better educated, uh, you know, wealthier, whereas this cohort that is protesting today and, and has been protesting for the last week seemed to be poorer, typically people who would support the more conservative elements of the clerical regime, right?
1: I think that's exactly right. And, you know, what's interesting too is that they're they have been driven more by, again, more day-to-day issues. Whereas 2009 wasn't about the day-to-day issues. It was very much political and social. It was about people pushing back against Ahmadinejad being re-elected. They were concerned about, you know, civil rights. The the slogan started as, you know, uh, rejecting the re-election, a recount of the votes, civil rights, minority rights, women's rights, um, foreign policy, et cetera. Whereas this time around what you're seeing is a large emphasis on economic issues, which is not to say that other issues are not coming up. Of course, these are, you know, this is not, again, a cohesive, unified movement. You don't really have uh, a leadership like you did in 2009. You don't have leaders who are leading this.
0: It's it's, it's, it's sort of like sort of has grown organically and somewhat spontaneously um, because of these kind of economic grievances. Um, but I guess what's interesting to me is like who's being sort of targeted, who's, who are the protesters blaming for these economic crises? Is it Rouhani on the one hand, or is it, you know, the, the Ayatollah on, on the other? I mean, it seems that, that before, you know, you mentioned that um there was like a, that Rouhani has added like a degree of transparency to budgetary processes that has sort of demonstrated the extent to which forces aligned with the clerical regime seem to sort of be funneling a lot of money into their own pockets. And that seems to have um, animated a, a number of these protesters as well.
1: Yeah. So what is interesting here, again, in contrast to 2009, is that what started the the movement was actually the hardliners uh, coming and pushing against Rouhani's uh, economic policies. Essentially, what they see as the failure of Rouhani's policies in uh, bringing about real economic change and sort of, you know, the, the benefits of the nuclear deal is that he's put too much emphasis, from their perspective, on building ties with the West on the nuclear deal as opposed to really taking care of, you know, people's day day-to-day needs. What happened later on was that this sort of evolved into a movement that wasn't just targeting Rouhani, it wasn't just by hardliners targeting Rouhani, but rather a broader movement that is now questioning uh, the higher ups, essentially, right, the supreme leader and and others, uh, the IRGC and others who uh, have a hand in uh, Iran's, you know, political politics and economy so it's again, it's not a unified movement, it's not cohesive, and I would say that at this point, everybody is essentially targeted by uh by the discontent within it.
0: Do you know how or why it has spread so quickly
1: so that one is interesting you know it seems like um one of the things that we had seen in the past few years was, uh, you know, people since 2009 had started going to the ballot box. They had a number of opportunities to go to the ballot box. And, you know, we can talk about all the limitations of the Ara- Iranian um, electoral system and the vetting uh, that is conducted by uh, uh, the the Guardian Council and so on and so forth. But nevertheless, there were four elections, two par- parliamentary elections and two presidential elections, uh, which allowed people to kind of. Feel like they're, you know, making progress to to vote for the policies that they uh, believed were uh, the most effective in bringing about change, and so the the movement had moved away from the streets and onto uh, the electoral system uh, and the political the, the political uh, process. What is interesting this time around is that uh, you have now people coming out in the street and sort of. You know, realizing that there are limitations to what they can achieve at the ballot box. Uh, that said, I would also argue that you know, again, because this is not a widespread movement in the in, in in the sense of you know the the social classes that are essentially out in the street are not. It's not all of the Iranian society. It's a specific class um, of people. Uh, it's a, sp- a specific group of people uh, that that also does have limitations. But. Um, One of the things that is bringing a a lot of people out is the general sort of discontent with how things have been going. And number two is that you have access to social media. You have people who are much more aware of what's going on and are able to join um, the protests and organize a lot more easily than they were, uh, you know, uh, 10 years ago
0: to what extent do you attribute these protests and and sort of general discontent to raised expectations that a financial windfall would come to the country following the the nuclear deal and then the fact that that windfall has apparently not not taken place
1: i think that certainly plays a part um you know rohani was elected the first time around in 2013 largely on an economic platform. Uh, before that, in 2009, uh, if you looked at the debates that were taking place between various candidates, if you looked at the the campaigns and the platforms that various candidates were presenting, uh, there was a mix of, you know, different um, messages and, and topics that they they each tried to convey and they were all interested in social issues, economic issues, foreign policy, etc. In 2013, it was very much focused on the economy and the nuclear deal as uh, sort of the, the key to unlocking uh, economic benefits, um, sanctions relief, and the normalization of Iran's uh, political and economic status, which would in turn allow the country to then uh, reintegrate itself in the, in the global economy. So after his first term in office, which was four years and it ended, um, in 2017, uh, you know, Rouhani didn't have a whole lot to present to his, uh, to his constituents. Uh, but he did have the nuclear deal. And so he could hide behind the fact that, you know, it took us, uh, basically the better part of my first term to achieve this nuclear deal. And now we're going to work, on uh, delivering the economic benefits of the nuclear deal. Uh, But now it's been, you know, two years since the nuclear deals implementation started. Uh, It started in uh, January, 2016. Uh, and, uh, there, you know, he doesn't have a whole lot to show for, uh, for it. There has been some, uh, sanctions relief. You've had some businesses going into Iran. Uh, there is the oil sales, et cetera, but none of that is translating into employment, you know, jobs, um, uh, better prices, uh, et cetera, for people's daily lives. And so you do have a faction of the population that is suffering Uh, from, uh, you know, from the same economic challenges that it was facing four years ago, five years ago.
0: And I I have to imagine that there are like a multitude of factors that um, go into sort of why the sort of economic benefits from the uh, sanctions relief and from the nuclear deal are not being felt more widespread throughout the country. But I'm wondering to what extent... The uncertainty that the Trump administration is adding into this equation in terms of whether or not it will sort of reenact the sanctions or renege on the, the nuclear deal um, are sort of like limiting investment opportunities in Iran that might contribute to to some of this growth. I mean, do you do you see any sort of causal relationship there?
1: Yeah, absolutely. You have a number of, uh, different challenges, uh, both internal and external. You know, again, Iran has a very corrupt, uh, uh, system. It's not a transparent economy. It doesn't have the regulatory landscape that, that you need in order to attract businesses and investors. Uh, all of which are, by the way, points that Rouhani was bringing up in, in the, uh, in the speech that kind of started this whole Uh, this whole movement. Uh, At the same time, though, I think that there are a number of external factors, among which is the fact that the Trump administration has been, uh, well, President Trump specifically, I I want to caveat here. President Trump specifically has been very, uh, 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 you know, belligerent against the nuclear deal. He has, since the campaign, uh, he's promised to undo the nuclear deal. Uh, He's then moved on to uh, not recertify uh, the JCPOA. That's the nuclear deal in, in October. Uh, and now we're waiting uh, in the next few days to see if he is going to waive the sanctions as he's uh, supposed to under the nuclear deal um, and, and grant Iran with sanctions relief from the nuclear related sanctions. So that has created uh, a, an atmosphere of um, uncertainty that is not necessarily going to help investors and businesses uh, and reassure them, uh, to, to go back to Iran. And that is a combination of the political climate, but also the fact that you have remaining sanctions, not all sanctions were lifted. Under the nuclear deal, it was just the nuclear-related sanctions. So you still have sanctions that Iran for uh, human rights violations and uh, support for terrorist groups, and so on and so forth. So there are a number of um, different uh, challenges that have uh, stymied Iran's ability to get the economic recovery uh, it was it was seeking.
0: So what would a, an optimal U.S. response be? I mean, we've seen, you know, the regular bluster from Trump on on Twitter. And, you know, as as many people have, have pointed out, he's expressing all the support for the Iranian people at the same time, imposing basically a travel ban, blanket travel ban on any Iranians who wish to come to the United States. Um, but what what would what should what ought the, the U.S. government be doing right now?
1: Well, I think in this case, less is more um, in terms of rhetoric from the president and the administration more generally. Um, the the administration has undone a lot of the progress, in my view, that was made under the Obama administration and reaching out to the Iranian people. I don't mean to the Iranian regime, but uh, President Obama was very um, uh, sort of forthcoming. He had these uh, Persian New Year messages that he would record every year. And you know he was always very careful to kind of distinguish between the Iranian regime and the Iranian people in his in his commentary, and he was very um, uh, sort of prudent in in the way he spoke about about Iran. President Trump has been even though he stated that he wants to distinguish between the two uh has really largely failed to do that his um s- remarks in Riyadh um in um I-, I believe it was May uh 2017 uh his first foreign trip to to Saudi Arabia um and then the the sort of the uh, unveiling of his Iran policy uh in in the fall in all of those remarks, he managed on some level to deeply offend Iranians. Um, so, you know, any kind of comment that, and, and of course you refer to the travel ban, uh, which targets number of um, uh, Muslim-majority countries. Now they've added um, countries that are not majority Muslim, but Iran is is one of the countries that is affected uh, by this. Um, All of these these different policies and uh, the rhetoric um, have made Iranians in general have a very negative view of the Trump administration. And so I think that uh, the president really, by doing less here, by talking less, by tweeting less, would actually be doing more, um, he, he would be helping a lot more. The, the other
2: thing, can can I, can can I just, just, just ask you there. So, I mean, you know, so, so policy wise, um, the, the Trump administration, you know, is all in with Saudi Arabia in their geo, you know, political struggle uh, against Iran in, in the region. Um, but what, what did Trump say, uh, in that speech or in Saudi Arabia during a visit to offend like the Iranian people?
1: Well, so the, the things that the president has sort of uh, said, both in the, the visit to Saudi Arabia, but also in the unveiling of the Iran policy, uh, but that also other people in the administration have said, uh, are things like, you know, he referred to the, to the uh, Gulf that separates Iran and, and, and uh, the Arabian Peninsula as the Arabian Gulf. Uh, that's something that is incredibly sensitive for, I would say, most Iranians. Um, you know, it's called the Persian Gulf. They, they get incredibly offended um, when you call it the Arabian Gulf. That's funny. I'm actually Um,
2: looking. I have a map next to my uh, wall in my office, and it's called the Arabian Gulf in in that map, even though I would assume it would be called the Persian Gulf.
1: Well, right. There you go. So, Uh, you know, I mean, if you if you have an Arabian, uh, sorry, an Iranian guest at home, you should hide that map because you'll get into trouble for it. Uh,
2: I'm looking at this is a map from Sweden, (laughs) actually, from printed by a company in Stockholm in 1992. Oh, uh, maybe, though. There you go. Yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah. So, uh, so that that's one, one thing. The other thing was that uh, Secretary Tillerson was standing next to, you know, uh, in Saudi Arabia, was talking about Iran's human rights violations, which, you know, we should absolutely talk about. Uh, but the way people saw that in Iran was that he is in Saudi Arabia, which is arguably one of the only countries with a worse human rights track record than Iran. Uh, And he's pointing uh, Uh the finger at Iran. Um, He, uh, you know, and then, of course, the, the travel ban itself, which doesn't target necessarily the Iranian regime, but it kind of targets the broad Iranian population. All of that served to kind of Bring Iranians, uh, you know, closer to to the way hardliners had seen the United States for for a long time, and that the Obama administration was really trying, and I would say other previous administrations too, were really trying to stay away from that. We're trying to kind of always distinguish between the Iranian people and the, the what their leaders do, um, and that's something that it's a nuance that was sort of lost in uh, the president's remarks this year.
0: So I, I hate to sort of. Ask you to make a a prediction because it seems that this is like a a very volatile (laughs) situation. So I won't ask you how this ends, but I I will sort of ask you what indicators should we look to in the near future that that could suggest one way or another how this might end?
1: Yeah it's I mean it's definitely too early to tell and um as any good Iran analyst knows you never make predictions because you'll probably be wrong so um so that that much we know uh but a, a few things to watch for number 1 is Uh, what do various officials in Iran say? Um, And so far, what we've seen is uh, statements by Rouhani, uh, the president coming out and saying, look, the people have the right to protest. um, And uh, at the same time, uh, people should not, you know, uh, damage uh, uh, public property, etc. So, uh, you know, trying to really get Uh, drive the point home that people should protest, they should have the right to to organize, uh, but at the same time to kind of, uh, you know, tell people that they should um, respect uh, property and and so on and so forth. The Supreme Leader, um, for his part, made uh, some comments yesterday uh, where he said what you would kind of expect him to say, uh, sort of trying to link the protest to foreign agents and, and so on and so forth. Um, but at the same time, there seems like there are uh, certain steps that are being taken. For example, the price of eggs, again, this, (laughs) a lot of this goes back to the price of eggs, right? Uh, the price of eggs is being lowered. Um, and, and so there's, it seems like there are certain steps that the government is beginning to take to kind of appease Maybe not the best word, but at least give some concessions or some uh, nuggets, essentially, to, to the people. Um, well, well, that's actually
0: that, that's one of the things I, was, I wanted to ask you about. I mean, you know, to the extent that these protests are economically driven, wouldn't just more redistributive policies um, mollify the protesters and, and encourage them to go back their you know daily working class lives?
1: Well, so you know again, not try, trying to stay away from making a prediction here. I do think that a lot of what people are seeking here is more tactical uh than what you're seeing in a lot of the analysis and commentary on what's going on. In my view, people are not seeking this big strategic uh you know shift. They're looking for tactical things that will actually have an impact on their daily lives. That is not to say that you don't have this content with the broader regime, that, you know, everybody is on board 100% with what's going on. Uh, it's just that people are really seeking things that will help them, you know, put food on uh their table and make ends meet uh so you know number one watching what people what officials say number two watch what the government does what kind of concessions it gives uh to people and then number three i think you know monitoring how people react to that uh is is uh, incredibly important the final thing too i think is looking at what the security forces and law enforcement do Um, in other words what we've seen so far is that there has been some, you know, you've had the traditional law enforcement who's become involved, but you've also seen IRGC involvement uh, in a few places. Uh, What would be indicative is if you begin to see more IRGC presence and more activity by them on the ground.
0: Well, thank you so much for your time. This was was interesting. And, uh, you know, it'll, it'll be interesting to see how this thing evolves.
1: Yeah, thanks for having me.
0: All right. Thank you all for listening. Thank you very much to Ariane. That was a helpful distillation of current uh, events in Iran and the best way to to learn which way this thing is going to swing in, in the near future. So thank you very much. Uh, remember to leave that review on iTunes. I so appreciate it. And I'll see you next time. Bye. The views and opinions expressed in the podcast are those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the policies or positions of humanity in action.